Good morning, Marseille. Good afternoon, Durban, and good evening, Kuching. From Washington, D.C., I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss Europe's migration crisis and a high-stakes geopolitical dance battle. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? Well, I'm doing pretty well, thanks, Ethan. I'm uh, I am somewhat burning up over here in London, though. Oh, it's it's 27 degrees Celsius, which feel yeah, well, it feels like 45. That means absolutely nothing to me, to tell you the truth. That sounds <laughs> I don't know. Let's say 300 Fahrenheit. I don't know. <laughs> that sounds freezing cold. 27 <laughs> degrees. Put on a sweater for God's sake, John. Uh, so we are uh, we're headed to the, the Mediterranean mm-hmm. for this one, uh, which John has. It's become a real hotspot in Europe's migration crisis. Yeah, it, it sure has. Um, this year, almost 40,000 people from across the world have arrived on Europe's Mediterranean shores, 98 percent of whom have have come by boat. You know, I don't think the, the Mediterranean is necessarily known for huge seas the way maybe the Atlantic Ocean is or, or, or whatever. But, uh, you know, it's not it's really not an easy journey by boat by any means. And we've just heard so many heartbreaking stories about crossings gone horribly wrong. Uh, you know, just this past week, a fishing trawler carrying about uh, 750 people, mostly from Pakistan, uh, sank off the coast of Greece. Uh, as of now, and, and mind you, this number really could very easily go up. Um, but as of now, the death toll is over 300. Mm. It's just really an unimaginable tragedy. Yeah. I mean, heartbreaking is the the only word to to use there. And and these stories, you know, they're they're not unique. No, not by any means. You know, we're not going to list all the tragedies um, here. But you're completely right. It's it's not. It's very sadly not a unique story. Um, and I think it is worth pausing to consider the fact that this boat, which left from the Libyan port of Tobruk was mostly carrying people from Pakistan, you know, about 4,000 kilometers away. And there are some migrants who come from, you know, deep in sub-Saharan Africa and thousands upon thousands of others come from as far away as places like Afghanistan and, and Bangladesh. So it's it's really a global crisis that Europe is is trying to deal with. And, and how are they trying to deal with it? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say they've done particularly well to date. Um, Greece, for example, um, has faced charges of negligence in this most recent case, which Pakistan's prime minister promised to investigate and assured that, and, I, and I'm quoting here, heads will roll um, after he finds out who's responsible. Um, and, you know, island nations like Malta in the Mediterranean have consistently been accused of failing to rescue distressed migrants or sometimes shepherding them back to the ports um, the migrants left from. I, I think it all goes to show, Ethan, just how politically difficult the issue of migration is for a lot of these European countries. I mean, in Italy, where around 20,000 people arrived between January and March, compared to 6,500 during that same period last year, migration was a really central issue in Italy in, in, in last year's election. Um, and it arguably showed that many Italians want less of it. Right. And this this isn't you know unfamiliar. We, we saw these same sort of politics emerge in the wake of the Syrian refugee crisis in 2015. Yeah, exactly, which is which is why Europe is looking for a way to essentially offload this issue elsewhere, right? A couple of weeks ago, EU interior ministers met in Luxembourg, whose population, fun fact, is made up of 43% foreign-born. And, oh, John, another Luxembourg fun fact, there's a restaurant there with the world's largest wine list. Uh, is, is that true? Yeah, it's, it's like... Uh, 
It's like it's like two thousand bottles. <laughs> okay, I'm just gonna jot, jot that down real quick. But <laughs> any, anyway, um, that's a fair interruption. I am glad yeah. I know that now. But, um, <laughs> Not too far away from you. Well, exactly. Um, I pay, might pay a quick visit, but. Um, no, as I was saying, the EU interior ministers, that they were meeting in Luxembourg, perhaps, as you mentioned, over a few bottles of Luxembourgish wine, although I don't know if they, they make wine, but um, they agreed to a plan that would give uh, countries the option of either hosting those migrants that, they, that, that, are, that are hitting their shores or paying a sizable fee to either help other European countries or countries outside the EU host those migrants. Uh, and the top candidate, it looks like, that they're turning to outside the EU is Tunisia. Uh, in just the past few weeks, European officials like EU Commissioner Ursula von der Leyen and the Prime Ministers of Italy and the Netherlands, they've been jet-setting back and forth to Tunis to meet with the President Kai Said uh, and try and strike a $1 billion deal with him to improve Tunisia's economy uh, and help it invest in a better coast guard and better border management and things like this. Um, you know, you, you brought up the, 200, uh, sorry, the 2015 migration crisis, um, and it sounds very much like the deal that the European officials arranged then with Turkish President Erdogan to accept millions of uh, Syrian refugees. That was not easygoing, if I remember correctly, convincing Erdogan right. to do that. I mean, how, what does President Syed of Tunisia think about all this? Yeah, well, I think it's equally not easygoing. He's not enthusiastic. Um, you know, during a visit by the German and French interior ministers on Monday of this week, uh, he said Tunisia didn't want to be Europe's border guard and he refused to be a country or, you know, to resettle refugees. Um, I don't think that's particularly surprising. I mean, it could be a negotiating tactic, of course, to drive a better deal with Europe. Um, but Saeed has used some extremely harsh language to describe migrants from sub-Saharan Africa in particular. And he's been accused of stoking racial tension in Tunisia as a result. Plus, as an aside, we've written extensively about Saeed's anti-democratic tendencies. So I think it's at least noteworthy that European officials are so eager to work with him now. Mm, great point. But I guess they don't see any other option. I mean, either you accept refugees that arrive at your shores or you find someone else who will. And if no one else will, then I don't know, who knows? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think it all just kind of goes to show how complex... Uh, the geopolitics of the Mediterranean are. Uh, on one hand, you might feel compelled to criticize Said's regime, but then on the other, Tunisia might be the key to solving what is a very serious and urgent problem for, for the rest of Europe. But then I think the bigger point here is that immigration to wealthy countries like the US or wealthy blocs like the EU, it's, it's not slowing down. Um, and considering you know, global instability, climate change, of course, Experts and policymakers, I think, all agree that we're going to see much more of this kind of forced migration in, in the near future. Um, you know, I think both the, U the US and the EU uh, are testing out strategies to kind of encourage prospective migrants before they've left um, their home countries to stay in third-party countries like Tunisia or, in the US's case, in, in Mexico. Um, but, you know, I think the reality is here that if people are desperate to get to a safe country like the EU or the US. And again, they're desperate as, as you know, would I be in their situation? Um, you know, then these migrants are going to try to get there come hell or literally high water. Today's show is sponsored by Holy. With Holy, you can earn cash back, rewards, and discounts on everything from mental health and fitness to personal care and productivity. Here's how it works. You get cash back, savings, and points for various health and wellness services. 
Then you can redeem your points for cashback or use them for premium products and services in Holy's wellness marketplace. Check out the show notes to learn more. Holy is the credit card to make health and wellness more affordable. All right, welcome back. Next up, John, we've got a complex geopolitical dance party going on between the world's three most populous countries. That's well, a uh, very uh, flowery language there, but yes, you're absolutely right. We're talking, of course, <laughs> about the flurry of diplomatic meetings over the past week by China, the US, and India. So uh, you're the boss, Ethan. How should we take this? I mean, we could we could take it on uh, which party we think would be the best dancer. I have no idea. But, That's not going to work. Okay. Yeah, I guess we'll take it chronologically then. <laughs> yeah, that make that makes more sense. <laughs> um, so that means that we'll we'll be starting with uh, Sec- U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to China uh, this past Sunday and Monday for high level discussions with Chinese leaders. Somewhat surprisingly, or perhaps unsurprisingly, if you kind of take into consideration uh, U.S. China relations. Um, but it was the first time a U.S. Secretary of State has visited China for meetings since 2018 and the first cabinet-level visit uh, since 2019. I think it's definitely worth noting uh, that during Blinken's visit to Beijing, uh, China announced the first nighttime Taiwan um, Taiwan encirclement flights by their nuclear-capable bomber Mm. aircraft, which was following the US deploying its own bombers to Guam last week. So, you know, I think both sides are still, uh, maybe they're talking, but they're not happy. So these talks, uh, they went terribly. Yeah, I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's an un- unreasonable assumption to say if you're, if you're sort of announcing nuclear bombers that the talks went badly, but I don't think they actually did go badly. That's the good news. Um, the US side in particular took very obvious steps to lower expectations for the meeting ahead of time. Um, you know, let's not forget the meeting has been delayed a number of times, most recently in February, thanks to the, this ridiculous spy balloon drama. Um, but I think to answer your question, the US was really clever to set the bar low because by all accounts, the meetings went better than expected, which then gives us a sense of positive upward momentum in the relationship. Anyway, Blinken met with China's foreign minister, Qing Gang, and its top ranking diplomat, Wang Yi, on Sunday. And then he got his much desired and talked about meeting with President Xi Jinping on Monday. Um, you know, j- just a just a sort of an observation, a personal observation. China's really good at convincing other countries that getting a meeting with Xi Jinping um, is the goal in and of itself, rather than sort of the part of the process of you know high quality diplomacy. Uh, I think that was China's goal here too, to make the U.S. really want that meeting with Xi Jinping. But they got it. As for results, you know, we haven't seen or heard anything that suggested these talks had any concrete outcomes, other than you know having the conversation. But I remain in the camp that talking is better than not talking most of the time. Uh, And both sides described the visit as positive and that it set the groundwork for a future visit between Xi and Biden later this year um, and opened up other opportunities for communication um, in the future. Perhaps you could say it's a little depressing that these outcomes are seen as positive, but we're in a place right now that the main goal is to make sure that China and the US put a floor under how bad uh, their relationship can get. Mm. You mentioned India a little earlier. I mean, how did, how did they come into this story? Yeah, well, exactly. That's where the, the next bit of the chronology comes in. Um, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi will be arriving in Washington for an uh, official state visit. That's the, that's a big deal. Um, he'll be hosted for a lavish state dinner, you know, the whole the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, that's on Thursday night. And then somehow, somewhere in his very busy schedule, he'll find time to address um, a joint session of Congress. That's a pretty big deal um, to you people, Ethan, <laughs> you Americans. Um, you know, I think he's going to join a, 
just a handful of world leaders, um, along with Winston Churchill, Nelson Mandela, and Volodymyr Zelensky, to be a leader, a world leader who's addressed the two joint sessions of Congress. And actually encourage a, a slight digression here. I'd actually encourage listeners to check out your fascinating interview from last Friday about this with uh, Richard Rosso. Um, as you know, Ethan, the interest, the, the geopolitical consideration that, that sort of really ties the US and India together, speaking of Modi's visit, is their shared concern over China. Right. Which leaves uh, China dancing alone. Never a good feeling, as I'm sure you know, Ethan. <laughs> hey, come on. Watch it. That, come on. I can't harsh resist but, Harsh but fair, yeah. <laughs> I, I apologize. Um, no, more seriously, I think it is interesting timing. Um, you, the US rolling out the red carpet for Modi right after a visit to Beijing kind of shows that the US has influence with countries that are suspicious of China. Um, and by refusing talks with the US, China might be excluding them, um, themselves from some very important discussions. There's that sense, right? Um, you know, these state visits, Modi's I'm talking to, uh, about here, these state visits don't come together overnight. The Chinese will have been well aware that Modi was visiting Washington, um, and that might, it's a speculation here, but that might explain the timing of Blinken's visit. Um, maybe the Chinese were keen to get Blinken to Beijing for talks before Modi went to, to DC. Ultimately, you know, talks are good and all, but I think we'd all really like to see these three countries have much more meaningful discussions more regularly without at least in the, the US-China case, without uh, the constant sniping and, and diplomatic handbags at 10 paces. Well, John, I, I'm never dancing alone when I'm dancing with you. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> Thanks, Ethan. Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. Qatar and the UAE announced plans on Monday to reopen their respective embassies after six years of deep diplomatic freeze. The two countries severed ties in 2017 after several of Qatar's Arab neighbors accused it of supporting terrorist groups. Moldova's top court ruled Monday that a pro-Russian political party, the Shore Party, should dissolve. Several of Shore's highest-profile leaders are already on the EU sanctions list for alleged efforts to destabilize Moldova. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, not everyone can say they've interviewed Farid Zakaria on a scenic lakeside patio, but one member of the International Intrigue team can. So check out today's newsletter to see my lucky coworker, who I promise I'm not jealous of. <coughs> Something stuck in my throat. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.